Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of a current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show... Disappointing, uh, to say the least. I was really angry, to be honest, that somebody who is a colleague would not be acknowledged. Melbourne Vigil honours Palestinian journalists lost in Gaza criticises ABC limited coverage and demands reporter protection. Concerns emerge amongst the recent decriminalisation of drugs in the ACT. Uh, the big barriers that people face, high property prices, rising interest rates and the lack of funds for a deposit. A recent poll shows millennials and Gen Zs believe they will never own a home in the future. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air right across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today. In the ongoing Israel and Gaza conflict, 30 journalists have tragically lost their lives, compromising of 25 Palestinians, 4 Israelis and 1 Lebanese journalist, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Israel has launched a series of continuous raids on Gaza in response to Hamas' attack resulting in a devastating toll of over 8,000 casualties, including more than 3,000 children, since a conflict erupted on October 7. Palestinians and journalists gathered in front of ABC studios in, the, in South Bank, Melbourne, to hold a silent sit-in vigil in honour of Palestinian journalist Roshdi Saraj and other journalists who have lost their lives during the Israeli's bombing of Gaza. The group were critical of ABC's lack of coverage on the issue and also calling for increased protection for journalists reporting from Gaza. I spoke to organiser and chair of Olive Tree, Amin Abbas, who is demanding access for international journalists on the ground to ensure accountability for all parties involved in the war. Uh, Rujdi was not acknowledged by the 7.30 report in spite of uh, us contacting the ABC. I emailed the producer of the ABC a couple of times, an email and then a follow-up after I have not heard any tribute being paid for him at all, uh, which was extremely disappointing, uh, to say the least. I was really angry, to be honest, that somebody who is a colleague would not be acknowledged. Um, and only after I issued a media release and we organized the event of today that the, AB, the 7.30 report acknowledged Rushdie in the last minute of the episode last night, which was very cold, very hollow, tokenistic acknowledgement of Rushdie. Uh, I don't think they would have probably done it had there not been a media release. Um, and this is kind of like tells you a pattern of the media in this country. And we expect much better from the ABC, our national broadcaster. We know that they are. I mean, we, like from even before Shirin Abu Akhle, but Shirin Abu Akhle, you know, created this very clear crystal message that Israel is willing to kill our journalists, particularly the ones that are having an impact. Um, and I don't think really there's any, um, you know, 
uh, a respect for journalists or professionals or doctors on the ground in Gaza. Everybody's a fair target. We, our babies are fair targets, so that will not really, uh, uh, you know, they will not spare any journalists. Actually, journalists are potentially would be more of an interest to be, to be killed because they want to stop reporting on the ground and they want to continue to have these war crimes unreported. Look, I mean, this is a, a, um, a pattern of Australian media here. If you look at the, the way the politicians work in this country and the way the media works in this country, there's definitely a lot of silencing and there's lack of interest in really getting the facts on the ground. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. We, like we know, the, the most obvious with them is really continue to uh, adopt the story that America would like Australia to, to take. Um, there's very strong lobbies here that every time media uh, and also politicians take certain positions, there will be ramifications. Um, this country is not really as free as, you know, as it claims to be, particularly when it comes with the Palestinian question. I spoke to Tasneem Samag, an advocate, about why she was at the vigil. Uh, so we're here to honor Rushdie Saraj, who was a Palestinian freelance journalist that worked for ABC News. And ABC hasn't called for an investigation into his killing by Israeli um, airstrikes. Uh, they haven't called for a protection of their journalists. Um, and uh, we want to say that his life matters, that his life is worthy, and that uh, this is unacceptable for... Um, ABC and from Western media, the way that they're treating Palestinian journalists as negligible in this way. We want to um, show how it is to honor a journalist like uh, Rushdie and to um, call for better protection of journalists and uh, speak against the targeting of journalists by Israel that is done to suppress the truth of its aggression and its genocide. ABC acknowledged the death of Palestinian journalist Roshdi Saraj in a statement read out by MEAA by the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance at the protest. It reads, The ABC House Committee extends their deep condolences to the families of the freelance journalist and filmmaker Roshdi Saraj, who was killed in Gaza on October 22 during an airstrike. Mr. Siraj, who was working for the ABC shortly before his death, is among at least 23 journalists killed in the conflict since October 7. The ABC House Committee calls on all sides to respect the role of journalists and to avoid civil casualties. Journalists working for the ABC in these dangerous situations deserve the ABC's support. Uh, well, it's very important that the, uh, the entire world is informed about uh, what is going on in um, Gaza and in Israel. Um, it's uh, very important that uh, for um, a number of reasons that uh, the world can observe um, the uh, humanitarian cost, the um, impact of war, uh, and we need to have uh, the eyes and ears of the world through journalists on the ground in those places. So any um, censorship by any government that prevents legitimate media outlets from reporting from a war zone is very concerning to us. I do uh, believe or have read that Al Jazeera uh, or that the Israeli government is uh, has stepped back on its um, initial threat to close Al Jazeera's Jerusalem bureau. 
Um, so I think there has been some international pressure which has resulted there. Um, well, it's just extremely distressing that there's been so many media workers killed in um, such a short conflict. Um, a lot of, um, particularly in Gaza, a lot of the um, media workers are obviously residents of Gaza and there's no distinguishing between um, them and other residents of Gaza. And unfortunately, there's been, as we know, 9,000 people killed so far in this conflict. Um, there are, um, you know, thousands of um, uh, non-combatants who have been killed or made homeless by this conflict, including journalists. Um, so we're very distressed and concerned by this whole high death toll, by the number of um, journalists who have also been reported missing and unaccounted for. Um, and uh, we just want to make sure through, uh, as, as an affiliate of the International Federation of Journalists and through other organisations like the Committee to Protect Journalists, that all parties in this combat respect the role that journalists play as non-combatant witnesses in times of war. That was Mark Phillips, Director of Communication at Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, speaking to The Wire. The Wire and National Radio News have been covering the ACT's drug the ACT's drug decriminalisation law, which started last weekend. While advocates believe the bill doesn't go far enough, the ACT's opposition believe businesses and parents are concerned about the actions taken for the law to be into effect. National Radio News correspondent Amanda Kopp asked ACT's opposition leader Elizabeth Lee if the Territory was prepared for this change. You know, this government was very quick to talk about how they want to treat this as a health issue. But when you have a look at the health system in the ACT at the moment, which is under enormous pressure, uh, it's clear that they have not put in the uh, investment needed to ensure that the health system is ready. The other aspect that we've been getting a lot of concern about is in relation to businesses, especially the licensed premises, who, you know, they're saying, well, hold on, we undertake a responsible service of alcohol very seriously, but, you know, what are our rights and what are we able to do? Uh, what training do we have to ensure that if we are serving people or patrons that are under the influence of drugs, um, you know, that they're, they're making the right calls and um, doing everything they can to discharge their obligations. So we've received a lot of concern about that. And of course, the broader community as well, you know, parents who are concerned about the exposure uh, to their children, about what message this sends. Mm. Now, at least in response to that, the ACT government has said that they have put several measures in place in terms of preparing for this. They've made upgrades to um, one of their treatment centres. There's an opioid treatment centre specifically. There's a specialist drug court as well. And some aspect of, of ACT Health has employed an extra drug and alcohol counsellor. Do you think that measures like that are enough with these law changes? In short, no. And the reason is because we know that um, uh, the services that they uh, say they have now boosted were already struggling. We know that many Canberrans, even before these laws uh, were about to come in, were struggling getting access to the appropriate rehabilitation services and getting the support that they need. So the, the fact that uh, this Labor Greens government is trying to uh, spruik that they've added uh, more investment in these areas, you would really almost classify that as trying to uh, catch up to ensure that the services were actually just adequate, you know, before the laws were going to come in. Uh, so I think it is a furphy to say that, um, you know, we've, we've added this and this and this and, and, and we're prepared. 
the fact is that they were woefully and uh, inadequately uh, supported in the first place and uh, any measure that they have taken, you would probably classify that as just catching up. Now, you say that the ACT government and the health services are perhaps not prepared for what the implications of this law change will actually mean. But the way that they have framed it, um, and a lot of people have framed it, is that, you know, it's to stop people from entering the criminal justice system. What would your alternative be if not these laws? The fact is that we have been told by police, and in fact, the health minister herself in this week's sittings in question time said that the reality is the vast majority of people who are genuinely wanting to seek help and genuinely are concerned about uh, wanting to get off these drugs and to seek the appropriate support don't go through the criminal justice system. That is a reality. So, you know, the fact that um, this Labor Greens government is using that as an excuse to push forward with these changes, you can't have it both ways. You can't say on the one hand, uh, we're doing this so that we can make sure that um, people don't um, have to go through the criminal justice system. And then on the other hand, say it's not going to put an extra burden on health system because we know that uh, currently they're not being charged anyway. Mm. Now, there are lots of international, well, maybe not lots, but a handful of international examples where other countries or other jurisdictions like Portugal or Oregon and the United States have followed similar tracks um, in terms of decriminalising small amounts of illicit drugs. What do you think we can learn from some of those international experiences? What are you hearing in terms of what has happened with those places that have had these kinds of laws in place for a number of years or or months. Yeah, it was funny because um, a couple of months ago, I actually sat next to somebody who visits Portugal quite often, and um, she was able to say that she had grave concerns about what what she's seen. And she says that it is actually quite frightening what she sees openly um, happening on the streets of Portugal, and, uh, and she's very concerned that uh, Canberra might go down the same route. What kind of things does she say? Oh, just openly, openly people using drugs on the street um, next to schools where uh, you know kids are coming to and from school each and every day, uh, that kind of thing. And um, it's also important to note that the architect of the drug decriminalisation laws in Portugal himself has come out expressing concern about the way that it has played out. Now, with all good intentions, I have no doubts, but in the reality of what has played out in Portugal, I think, has made people realise, uh, you know, uh, perhaps we needed to not go down that route or we need to review it or make that sure that other jurisdictions learn the lessons Elizabeth that uh, we have gone through. with the National Radio News, Amanda Cox. For the past decade, a myriad of Australians have found it extremely difficult to purchase their own homes. A recent poll from the Susan McKinnon Foundation has found only 59% of millennials and 63% of Gen Zs think they are likely to ever own their own home. Despite the best efforts of the governments and experts, for some, the dream of owning their own home is exactly that, a dream. McKinnon Poll Program lead Matt Crocker explains. A recent poll says that a vast majority of Gen Zs and millennials believe owning their own home is virtually impossible. Why is that? Uh, thank you. So, so we found in this poll that there's a massive gap between housing aspirations and, and housing expectations. So while 9 in 10 uh, uh, young people uh, want to own their own home, only six in 10 think they're going to achieve it. Uh, the big barriers that people face, high property prices, rising interest rates, and the lack of funds for a deposit. 
The poll also showed that younger people were more open to seeing more apartments and semi-detached houses being built rather than older Australians. Why do you think that is? Uh, so it's younger Australians who are faced with the biggest challenges in, in the housing market. Uh, so they're more willing to see change in their suburbs uh, to, to bring through that, uh, that more affordable housing, which tends to be uh, a bit more dense either in apartment blocks or, or on smaller lots. Do you think that the results of this poll would have any tangible effect in government policy regarding home ownership? Yeah, well, we, we certainly hope so. Uh, the thing that came out of this poll really strongly is that, that housing affordability is a major issue for Australians. So it came second after the cost of living. And if that's a priority for, uh, for the community, uh, then we certainly hope government will address it. During the decade, who do you believe has had a more proactive approach in dealing with the housing crisis? Is it state or federal governments or both? So the good news at the moment is that all three levels of government are focused on the housing challenges that we face, both federal government, state government and local government. And to resolve our housing issues, uh, all three levels of government will have to work together on these problems. So we didn't, didn't ask questions about, in this poll about uh, about particular particular governments, but I think we can say uh, that the good news is that all three levels of government are working together on these issues. This might be a hard one to answer, but what do you believe is the best possible way or who do you think has the best approach in dealing with the housing crisis? So in addressing the housing crisis, what came through uh, in our results was that there's not one single silver bullet solution. Uh, we'll need to do a range of range of different interventions to address housing, the, the housing issues, whether that's building more semi-detached houses, more terrace houses and more townhouses, and more apartments as well, uh, as well as uh, finding new models and new approaches to build more social and affordable housing as well. Are you optimistic uh, about whether or not that future Australians could be able to afford their own home? Uh, yeah, so I think the, the good thing that came out of uh, out of this poll is the clear priority that Australians have for, uh, for addressing the issues of housing affordability and, and we believe that government will be motivated to address it. A whole generation of young Australians have looked at the dream of buying their own home as exactly that, a dream. We spoke to some young people in the street to ask about their opinions about the housing crisis. We started by asking them, do they own their own home? No, I'm renting a room. Are you saving up money to buy your own home? Um, I'm an international student, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> on the way to, to saving up my house. Do you think that the houses here are actually affordable compared to overseas? Um, the price is going up, so incomes are um, still the same at all levels, and I think uh, the interest rate is going up as well. It's pretty hard for people to, to save their monies and buy houses and stuff. Yeah. Are you optimistic about ever owning your own home? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking, I, I, I love to have my own home, so, but it's still far away, <laughs> yeah. Not in the near future, right? Um, I mean, it's pretty hard to say because I'm an international student, so yeah. uh, I don't know if I stay here or no, yeah. but um, I'll, I'll try my best to save my money to, to buy a house. No. Are you saving up to buy a house? Probably not. Are you renting at the moment? Yeah. Do you live with your parents or you live with others? Just by myself. Do you ever think that you'll ever possibly be able to afford your own home? I mean, 
You can get lucky, right? Yeah. Do you think that the government, state or federal, are doing enough to ensure that young people are able to buy their own home? Oh, that's a no. Yeah. Do so you think they are? Yeah. There's some stuff that we can do, but I don't think it matters. Like, it's not enough. What do you think they should do? Oh. Uh, uh, okay. no, I got, I got, yeah. there's too many thoughts That's on that okay. one. That was Gabriel D'Angelo reporting for The Wire. Free remote laundry services in the Northern Territory are helping to prevent scabies and related health conditions in remote communities. According to the Northern Territory's government website, scabies is a condition caused by a microscope mite. And it's a common problem in Aboriginal communities, where 50% of children and 25% of adults are affected. The Remote Laundries project, established by Aboriginal Investment Group in 2019, places laundries in a large in a large shipping container in communities, and the project is continuing to grow across remote areas in the Territory. The Wires contributor from Nagada Media, Cassandra Eru, asked Aboriginal Investments Group CEO Liz Morgan-Brett, what's the positive outcome of the project in First Nations communities? It's a really good question, Cassie. So remote laundries in the, the highest level are free washing and drying services that AIG provides to remote Indigenous communities. They're built in a 20-foot shipping container with four commercial washers and four commercial dryers, and we plonk them into community, plug them up to water and power, and the communities that we have them in have access to free washing and drying facilities thanks to our wonderful donors and our partners who fund the program. The benefits, Cassie, and it all came about five years ago uh, when the board of AIG, who are wonderful Indigenous leaders that represent the seven northern regions of the Northern Territory, came to our board meeting and said, there's an awful thing going on in communities and it's scabies presentation. And eight out of 10 Indigenous kids under the age of one will present to their health clinic with scabies. It's completely preventable. And we said, well, what's driving that? And they said, overcrowding in houses and a lack of access to reliable washing and drying facilities. That's where the remote laundries project came from. So we went, well, we can solve that. So let's plonk these four washers and dryers into a 20-foot shipping container so we can um, take them out to remote communities, plug them in, and it's it's a beautifully simplistic solution to a really uh, terrible problem that Indigenous people are facing in, in not just the Northern Territory but other remote communities around Australia. How does remote laundries play a big part in the communities? So first thing, Cassie, is the wonderful health benefits. Uh, the laundry in Barunga has been in operation for four years and we've seen a 60% drop in presentation of scabies at the health clinic there. So that reliable washing and drying gets rid of the scabies mite uh, and helps ha- people have clean clothes and clean bedding. But it's not just those good health outcomes that happen, Cassie. There's an economic benefit to community as well because each laundry employs up to five people in flexible and sustainable employment. So that injects about fifty dollars to $60,000 in wages into the community and creates five up to five jobs that otherwise wouldn't exist. So there's that beautiful health outcome and there's a really great economic input as well. Is remote laundries going to relocate into different communities across the NT? Absolutely, Cassie. We have four in operation at the moment and they're in Anuragu, Darwin, Barunga and Bickerton Island. 
We have four that we're building at the moment, which will go to Umbacumba, Boralula, Nooka and Gumbalanya. And beyond that, uh, we have a, a, a very lofty goal of delivering uh, another 30 or so in Northern Territory and ultimately, hopefully, into Queensland, Western Australia and down in South Australia. Wow, deadly. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the listeners? Uh, Cassie, we're so grateful for the wonderful leadership uh, of our Indigenous board uh, who represent those seven northern regions of the Northern Territory. They've driven this project from day one and uh, and we just couldn't do it without their wonderful leadership. That was CEO of the Aboriginal Investment Group, Liz Morgan-Brett, ending the story by Nigata Media's Cassandra Ariu. And unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, where the program has been produced, and we pay our respects to the Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shakur, coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll see you next time on the wire.